Yesterday, after the Saturday evening service, I got hungry, which is, shouldn't be a surprise to you. Uh, I got hungry and I had a craving for burgers and burritos. And so uh, I invited my wife. I said, honey, would you come and accompany me? I, I, I'm hungry and I'm craving for burgers and burritos. Uh, let's go to Army and Navy uh, in Tomas Morato. And uh, I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that restaurant. Serves great burgers, uh, great burritos. And so we go to Army and Navy. You know how it is. You stand up in line and you uh, place your order. Then you sit down and they bring it out. Well, I'm not going to tell you what I ordered, but they brought out my food. And it was a lot. All right. There was onion rings and fries and soft taco and a burger. Uh, a complete square meal. And I enjoyed it very much. My wife ordered one single chicken burrito, being healthy that she wants to be. And she waited. She waited for 15 minutes, it didn't come out. And she waited for 30 minutes, it didn't come out. 45 minutes, it didn't come out. She waited an hour, and the food was still not there. Maybe it's because she's watching me enjoying myself. I didn't wait for her. I'm the one hungry. Uh, and so I finally said, you want to go up there and go check to see what happened to your order? It's been an hour, all right? Almost 10 o'clock already. It's late. And she goes and she talks to the manager. And apparently, they gave her a burrito to someone else. Now, my wife is usually very even-keeled and doesn't get mad a lot. Uh, and um, she was upset and she was angry, perhaps uh, uh, hungry. And uh, she just told the manager, just give me my money back. Give me my money back. But the manager said, okay, we'll give you your money back, but we'll give you a free chicken burrito. We'll just give it to you for free. She comes back and tells me what the manager said. I said, where is it? I refused it. Now, I don't ever understand refusing free food. If it's free, it's free. You take it. I said, why don't you take it? It's free. He's offered to you. He's going to give us for free. Well, she admitted to me. It's because it's a pride thing. I already told them, I don't want to eat it. I don't want it. I'm angry at them. It's a pride thing. I said, honey, do you know what my sermon, and she's hearing it for the first time now, do you know what my sermon is this weekend? It's on pride. She said, you're joking. I said, no, look, here's the, here's the church bulletin. From pride to humility. And the manager comes and he gives the receipt with the refund and uh, even though she had refused, uh, they brought the chicken burrito. And so I just stayed there. And because of a pride, she wasn't going to eat it. Inside, I'm thinking, if you're not going to eat it, I'm going to eat it. <laughs> so you better eat this. Why don't you eat this? It's pride. Can't eat it. Told them I wasn't. But it smells so good. <laughs> I just tried. It's Okay. You got to humble yourself. At least, you know, give me an illustration to use tomorrow morning. And she ate it. I asked her, how is it? It's good. Sometimes pride, if we're not aware of it, and we're not talking about the issue, uh, but sometimes pride often would lead severely to downfall and to discipline. Sometimes it will lead to missed opportunities. Pride is something that we all struggle with, including myself. Pride is something that is a, what we call a silent killer. It's something that you can hide very easily in your life. It is an issue of the heart that we can mask very well in how we speak and how we act. But if we have 
unresolved pride in our hearts, the Bible tells us it will lead to our destruction. As we continue our series in the book of Daniel, entitled Fearless, we have been speaking of the truth that fearlessness does not come from being confident. Fearlessness does not come from being proud and saying, this is who I am. I'm able to do this for the Lord. It comes from a position of humility, declaring in our hearts and mind that our Almighty God has called someone so insignificant as myself to do His work. It is not a notion of small God, big me, but a realization that it is a big God and a small me. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, as we look at verses 1 to 37. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 37. Here we have a story of how God humbles a king, changing what was once a very proud, egotistical man to a man of humility. In this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar will learn three spiritual truths about God. And it is these three truths, we can call them applications, that will keep us humble as we recognize these three truths about who God is. Now, from a historical perspective, between chapter 3 and chapter 4, about 20 to 30 years have passed since the fiery furnace incident. Nebuchadnezzar was now enjoying a time of peace and security. He had defeated all of his enemies and completed several impressive building projects. He was now able to rest and, and delight in what he has accomplished. And here's where we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. As we know, the Bible is the Word of God written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by over 40 different authors. The uniqueness of this chapter is for the first time in the Scriptures, we have a Gentile pagan king under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who writes an official proclamation that is included in the Scriptures. King Nebuchadnezzar is writing this chapter. Chapter 4 of the book of Daniel is a story of King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. And here in verses 1 to 3, King Nebuchadnezzar saw it fit that he would declare the greatness of the one true God, Yahweh, and that he is sovereign in this world. Now you may say, what's so amazing about that? You have to understand that for a foreign pagan king who is at the height of his power of the greatest empire of the world at that time, declaring that there is one true God and it is not him is something truly amazing. He is the leader of the Babylonians, a people who believed in the polytheistic religion, meaning they believe in many false gods. And for him to come out publicly and say, there is one true God and his kingdom lasts forever and ever, it's something amazing. Here was a man who tried to extend his kingdom forever. 
chapter 3. Instead of simply the head of gold, a statue, all of gold. Here was a man who wished that his kingdom would last forever, but coming to the acknowledgement that it is only the one true God's kingdom that will last forever. What happened to him? What so changed in his life? Look at verses 4 to 9. Now, we don't have the time to go through and exposit each of these verses carefully, and I hope you do that when you get home. But generally, in verses 4 to 9, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. The second one recorded here in the book of Daniel. And the Bible tells us in verses 4 to 9, this dream greatly troubled him. And so he brought in his magicians, the great minds of his empire, and told them his dream and asked them for an interpretation. The Bible tells us the magicians were not able to tell him the dream. But he remembered that Daniel, because the Holy Spirit rested on him, could interpret properly dreams. And for whatever reason, Daniel wasn't there, and so the king called him in. In verses 10 to 17, King Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream. In this dream, he dreamt that there was a very tall tree reaching to the heavens, seen by all the world. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar has just seen very tall trees. He had been to Lebanon and had seen the great cedars of Lebanon being felled, being brought to Babylon to fund or to supply his building projects. And here, this great tree in his dream, reaching all the way to the heaven, had food for all animals and birds that found shelter in and around this tree. But he notices in verse 13 that there is someone who is watching from heaven. There is a watcher, an angel. And this watcher calls down from heaven and he says, Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, and scatter everything. But the watcher has an instruction in verse 15. Do not fully destroy the tree. Leave the base, leave the stump and the roots in the earth. In this dream, the watcher, the angel from heaven says that the heart of man be changed to the heart of a beast. And what is the, what is the purpose of this dream in verse 17? In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he wills, and sets over it the lowest of men. It was a lesson to teach that someone will know that God is in control and that he controls the world. In verse 18, Daniel is asked to interpret the dream. But surprisingly, in verse 18, Daniel is shocked. He's silent. He doesn't say anything. Perhaps he's scared. The king encourages Daniel, Daniel, it's okay. Tell me the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel says, King, I so wish this dream was for your enemies, for someone else. But look what he says in verse 20 to verse 22. Daniel says to the king, That tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. Verse 22. It is you, O king, who has grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. The Bible tells us, Daniel reveals to the king, that King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. The greatness of the tree 
represents the greatness of Babylon. All animals, all creatures, all people were under the blanket of the tree, under the protection of Babylon. It was recognized in heaven as a great empire. But verse 23, And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like auction. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and it gives to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. The Bible says, because of your pride, King Nebuchadnezzar, one day, God will take away your kingdom. And he will take away your kingdom for seven years. You will become as a beast. You will be shooed out of your kingdom. You will eat grass like an ox. And after seven years, God will give back the kingdom to you. To show you, to teach you a lesson. That it is he who grants kingdoms to people, and it is he who takes it away. Now, here's the great lesson, verse 27. The message has been relayed. How then should he act? This is the application for King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's the application for us as well, verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable you. Break off your sin by being righteous, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps... There may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel urged, pleaded, begged, King Nebuchadnezzar, please turn away from your sinful pride. Produce the fruits of righteousness, which is an outflowing of a heart of submission. If you change, if you repent, God's judgment will be averted. And that's a principle there. As the message has been delivered... If the people of God respond, judgment will be averted. Look at the book of Jonah. Here is a call for life change. And it is something we need to take note as well. My friends, you have heard countless sermons. If you've been in this church for, for this year, you've heard 52 sermons, 10 years, 520 sermons. You've heard countless sermons on pride. How have you changed in your Christian walk? How have you changed? Have you changed to avert God having to correct you? Essentially, God put Nebuchadnezzar on a very short leash. He put Nebuchadnezzar on probation. You have been warned, Nebuchadnezzar. The next time you show forth your pride, these are the things that will happen to you. He should have thanked God. Thank you, God, for that warning. I will change. He should have learned. And perhaps he learned and changed superficially. But in the deep, dark regions of his heart, he said, Ah, this will never happen. I'll superficially change. 
Well, look what happens to him in verse 28 to verse 30. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking around the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? King Nebuchadnezzar, a year later, is walking around and he's, he's looking at the most beautiful city in the ancient Near East, the capital of the empire of the world, all of which has been built under his kingship. And he's enjoying this egomaniac, egotistical, prideful man. And he looks around and he says, look at all I've done. These were all built for my glory and my majesty with my hands. Now you may say, wow, that's pretty conceited. I would never be like that. I'd never say something like that. But my friends, this is a warning for all of us. Because even though we don't say it with our lips, if we believe it with our heart, it's the same thing. How many of you have said of yourself, you know what? I've made myself, yep, with the sweat drops of my tears and the sweat of my forehead, I've built this company all by myself. How many of you, whether you don't say it, but you believe it in your heart, say, you know what? I'm pretty good looking. Hey, you know what? I'm pretty athletic. How many of you have said, you know what, I'm pretty talented. Thanks God, we really don't mean it, but I'm pretty talented. I'm smarter than everyone else. We don't say it, but we think it. And we mask it in false humility. But boy, do we believe it in our lives. Be careful. Be careful. Look at verse 31, 33. While the word was still in the king's mouth, A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, he's on probation, That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of the heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claw. The moment he spoke what was in his heart, the king turned into an animal and driven out. And there he was rolling around in the dew of the fields. He didn't have any physical contact with other people. His hair grew long and his nails, fingernails, were not cut and also they grew long. And he became an animal, literally. There is a mental illness known as zoanthropy, an illness even observed in modern times, where a person thinks of himself as an animal and acts like one. Perhaps this is what God used to afflict Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know. Another possibility is that the king suffered from boanthropy. And with this illness, a person thinks himself or herself to be an ox. Daniel chapter 5 verse 21. His or her outer behavior is irrational. It's animalistic. But the inner consciousness remains virtually unchanged. The person can think for himself, but he cannot control his outward action. 
Daniel chapter 5 verse 21 tells us he was driven from the people and he lived with the wild donkeys. Can you imagine that? The man at the height of power, the man who was supreme leader of the largest empire of the known world at that time, is rolling around the grass with the donkeys. That is how God humbles the proud. Historians have identified a seven-year period from 582 B.C. to 575 B.C., seven years during which there is no recorded history of Babylonian military activity. From 582 to 575 B.C., there is no recorded history of Babylonian activity. Perhaps it was in this period that King Nebuchadnezzar became a beast. For sure, in the king's absence, Daniel, being the prime minister, would have played a major role in preserving the kingdom. But this illustrates very clearly Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Be warned. If you are proud, the Bible says, you will be taken down and you will be humbled. Whether in death or in this lifetime, the Bible says, the proud will be taken down. Verse 34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High in praise and honored him who lives forever. King Nebuchadnezzar had seven years to think about this lesson. Seven years. God said, it's going to take you seven years to learn what true humility means. You see, I'm sure that very moment, as he was walking around Babylon, and the moment he turned into a beast, he must have said, oh no, it happened. And I'm sure within that first day, I certainly would. I would have said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm tired of eating grass because his mind was still working. But God said, no, Nebuchadnezzar. This is superficial repentance. I'm going to give you seven years to think about this. My friends, if God is going to teach you a lesson... Make sure it doesn't take seven years for you to learn what humility is. Learn it now. Learn it now. Before it is too late. We have a tendency when something bad happens to us, as God punishes us to draw us closer to Him, we immediately say, sorry, Lord, sorry, Lord, I learned my lesson. But He knows us. Oftentimes, the lesson we learn is simply because we don't want to experience the trial And what we deserve. And so you better learn the lesson for real. Because God looks into your heart. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, it will take you seven years to learn this lesson. At the end of this, the Bible tells us the first thing that he does. Note this, verse 34. He blesses the Most High. He praised them. Can you imagine that? Lord, thank you for teaching me this lesson. I don't know about you. But I've been an animal for seven years. I'm blaming God. 
But man, he had seven years to think about this. And the first thing that he did was thank God. Because he learned three wonderful things about God. And in verse 34 to verse 37, we're going to look at three lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned about God. To change him from a proud man to a humble man. And it is these three lessons that we need to learn in our own lives. To always remember, which will keep us humble. Second part of verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar proclaims, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Lesson number one. God is sovereign. I know you've heard this before, but these are the lessons you need to take to heart. Lesson number one. God is sovereign. God's kingdom is forever. His right to rule in this world and in our lives is absolute. He has a right to rule. And here in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the sovereign authority of God. God is sovereign. And it took him seven years to learn. Because for a king who was at the height of power, of whom people called the king of kings, of which his word was law, people like this find it very difficult to accept the fact that they are not in control, that they have no say, that it is others, that being God, who has put them in power. And Nebuchadnezzar learned, God is sovereign. There's a story of the Protestant leader and preacher, the Reverend John Knox. John Knox uh, had a meeting with Mary, Queen of Scott, better known as Bloody Mary. John Knox was warned by the court officials that perhaps he should reschedule his meeting with Mary, Queen of Scott, because she was in one of her angry moods. John Knox, unheeded, replied, I will keep my appointment with the queen. Why should I be afraid of a queen when I've just spent four hours with God? Why should I be afraid of the queen when I have spent four hours with God? My friends, it's because we don't spend time with God. It's because we do not know God and we do not recognize His power and just how big we are. That is why we cower in fear. That is why we don't have a very big God. Nebuchadnezzar had seven years to think about God. And the more he thought about God, the more he realized the power of God. Just how powerful is your God to you? Is He powerful enough to change hearts? Is He powerful enough to deal with the problems of your life? If you don't think He can, then you think to spend more time in reading the Scriptures and knowing more about God. I will not be afraid of the queen, for I've spent four hours with God. Can you say that? Lesson number one, God is sovereign. His right to rule in this world and in our life is absolute. Verse 35 to verse 36. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Lesson number two. God is in control. And he does whatever he wants according to his will. Lesson number two. God is in control. And he does whatever he wants according to his will. It took Nebuchadnezzar seven years to learn that lesson. It is God who is in control. And he can do whatever he wants. You see in verses 35 to 36, Nebuchadnezzar confesses that man is answerable to God. God does not answer to us. Let me repeat that. Man is answerable to God. God is not answerable to man. We are responsible to Him. One day we will stand before the Bema Seat of Christ and we must give an accounting of our life. We are answerable to God for the way we live our life. God doesn't have to answer us one bit. Now God is a God of love and a God of mercy and a gracious God and a loving God. And we expect that a loving God always explains everything to us so that we can accept it. But you know, in the scriptures, in many ways, we don't have a right to question him. We can question him, we can ask, but he doesn't have to answer. Job chapter 33. Job says, God, why? Why has these things happened? Why have I lost my family? Why have I lost my business? Why, God? Explain to me. Job chapter 33, God says, Job, I am the God of the universe. I create the tides. I create the leviathans. I create all the creatures. I have created this universe. I've created you and I breathe life into you. Do you trust me, Job? God never answers him. God simply tells Job, Job, I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Isaiah chapter 29, the prophet Isaiah says, God, why? Why the nation Israel? Why is this happening to us? God says, Isaiah, I am the God of the universe. He doesn't say, don't question me, but he implies it. I am the God of the universe. I know what I am doing. Isaiah, will you trust me? Romans chapter 9, verses 19 to 20. The apostle Paul points out the very same thing. Why, God? God says, I'm in power. I know what I'm doing. Do you trust me? God is in control, and He does whatever He wants according to His will. So, my friends, we better take Him seriously. And we, that is part of the humbling process when we realize we are not in control. God is. So however you want to manipulate the situation, we can't. Because he's in control. And if we can't be in control, we better be humble. A great example of this is right here in verse 34 to 36. In the story of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is restored to him after seven years. That is nothing short of a miracle. Do you ever think about that? If your leader goes crazy for seven years, you don't know when it's going to end. If he goes crazy for seven years, even one year, what are you going to do? You're going to kick him out. 
There is intrigue in the courts of Babylon. There are thousands of people who are manipulating and playing politics because they want to be the emperor of Babylon. And the fact that God is able to preserve the Babylonian empire while the crazy king is eating grass is a miracle and shows forth the principle that God is still in control. It's amazing. If you read the annals of Babylonian history, it is intrigue after intrigue, murder for position. And it is interesting that in these seven years, no one challenges the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar. God is in control. Notice when King Nebuchadnezzar regains his throne, the Bible tells us, the end of verse 36, excellent majesty was added to me. Nebuchadnezzar was more honored than he was honored as he walked in pride. He was in a greater position of honor after the seven years than he was before. But this is a biblical principle. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Paste that verse in your wall. Underline it. Matthew twenty three twelve. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The great king of Babylon thought he was everything. Exalted, majestic. God says, I'm going to humble you. And it is in his humility that God grants him the ultimate majesty. Verse 37, lesson number three. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are true and his ways just. And underline this second part of verse 37. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. All those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Lesson number three. God humbles the proud. God humbles the proud. My friends, let me share with you from experience. As one who has been disciplined by God, and one who has seen God humble His people, this is not a lesson you will want to learn by force. Learn it today. Because if at that moment that God has to teach you a lesson by force and He humbles you, I truly say, may God have mercy on you. You do not want to be under the discipline of God. You do not want to be used by force to be humbled by God. I am scared for those who speak with prideful words with their lips and in their mouth that proclaim the greatness of themselves. I feel for them because when God has to humble them, it will not be pretty. This was the appeal of Daniel to the king in verse 27. Change, O king, before it is too late. Ray Steadman was a very popular pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California. And many people came to visit him. His secretary was the first line of defense. 
And these people, VIPs, many of them, wanted to meet this famous pastor. And they would often show them who they are, show her who they are, their VIP, whatnot, to try to get an audience with him. And so the secretary of Ray Stedman has a sign in her office in the front. As people came into the office, they would read this sign. The sign said, I have come to accept two truths. I've come to accept two truths. Number one, there is one God. Rule number two, you ain't him. Two truths, there is one God, and you ain't him. You see, God humbles the proud. That Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, for all eternity, in Daniel chapter 4, should openly admit his pride, his temporary insanity, his beastly behavior, and then give glory to the God of heaven is indeed a remarkable thing. Kings do not reveal their weaknesses. And here, thousands of years later, we read about the humiliation of King Nebuchadnezzar. I personally believe that King Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven today. And when I see him, if I were to ask him a question, I believe King Nebuchadnezzar, I won't call him king, I just call him Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, what was the most life-changing experience for you? He would say, have you read Daniel chapter 4? Let me tell you how God humbled me. Because it is in his humiliation that he recognized the glory of the one who deserves all glory. Learn the lesson today. God humbles the proud. And it will be a lesson that you will never forget. And it will be a lesson that you will find the grace of God in your life. D.L. Moody said, as he spoke of Moses, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then God took him to the wilderness. And for the next 40 years of his life, Moses realized he was a nobody. So that God could spend and use his last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. 40 years as a somebody in the courts of Pharaoh, and then 40 years as a nobody, as a shepherd, to learn the great lesson he learned in the last 40 years of his life, that God uses nobodies. You see, God has only two thrones, one in the highest of heavens and the other in the lowliest of hearts. To keep us humble, we accept and remember always these three principles that Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. Learn it today. Learn it now. Don't learn it superficially. Live it out in your life. God alone is sovereign and in control. God alone is sovereign and has authority over this world, number one. Number two, God is in control and he does whatever he desires. And lesson number three, God humbles the proud because God does not share his glory with another. Learn it today.
I close with this story of Samuel Morris. Sammy Morris was a devout Christian from Africa. He had come to America to go to school. And though his pathway to service for Christ was not an easy road, and his difficulties were many, it never deterred him. Perhaps this was because he had learned genuine humility. An incident that showed this occurred when he came to the school which with he was accepted into, which was the Christian University, Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. There he met the school president. And the school president was so amazed by his testimony that in honor of this man who had come all the way from Africa to learn the Bible, he said, Sammy, tell me which dorm room, dorm room you want. You can have any dorm room on the campus of Taylor University. Sammy replied to the president with these words, If there is a room nobody wants, give that room to me. I will take the room nobody wants. Later, the president commented in his memoirs, That moment I turned away, for my eyes were full of tears, because I was asking myself whether I was willing to take what nobody else wanted. Would I be willing to take what nobody else wanted? And the question I pose that to you and to myself, are you humble enough to take what nobody else wanted? Can I change the question? Are you willing to do what nobody else wants to do? Are you willing to stand fearless for the Lord before this world? Because it is something that nobody wants to do. Are you humble enough to be willing to stand fearless for Him? Until you can answer that question, you have not learned the lesson of humility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And the challenge of your word, challenging us to a life of humility. I, we acknowledge that there are times in our life we think too big of ourselves. We think too much of ourselves. And we think that we're in control. Teach me and teach us, Lord, the lesson that you alone are sovereign. You alone control this world. And you humble the proud. Help us to learn the lesson now so that you don't have to teach it to us by force. May all of us be willing to answer yes to the question, are we willing to do what nobody else wants to do? Are we willing to do what God has called us to do? May each of us live lives of fearlessness. Amen.